Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. This is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, July 7th, 2016. Happy Independence Day to everyone. Tonight, we have joining us trial lawyer Stephen Wright from Connecticut. He's a return guest, and he'll be talking about some recent developments um, coming out of credit card litigation and Christiana Trust, who I have dubbed a mock trust. And we'll be talking about substituted plaintiffs. And if we have time, mock borrowers. Stephen will be speaking with me about a decision that came out of the Florida 4th DCA court that uh, specifically and expressly dovetails with other decisions. It is the case of Septimus versus Christiana Trust, and it was decided earlier this year. One of the things that the court turned upside down was the strategy used in that case and other cases across the country of adding more paper when the original paper was proving troublesome to the banks. In other words, they were about to lose, and so now they just added more paper to the pile and in many cases, the judges gave him the benefit of the doubt, even though I don't think there was any doubt. It's all going the way I said it would, but once again, I underestimated the time it would take for the courts to start paying attention to reality. The courts are starting to smell dead fish in the water, the result of a toxic waste dump of financial securities on a market that was overheated and could support that crap for a while, but ultimately collapsed, giving us the 2008 recession, which for most people is still going on, even though the technical factors say that the recession is over. In the Septimus case, we see that the practice of substituting plaintiffs, a tactic that lawyers for the banks like to use, the banks like to use it because it distracts the judge from the very real problem that the original plaintiff in a judicial state uh, had. They lacked standing, legal standing, which meant that they were not an injured party when they filed suit. So they were papering over it, substituting another party as the plaintiff in the judicial state, and make it look like there was yet another transaction when no transaction took place. And that's 
pretty much why you see the musical chairs in the where they substitute servicers, they substitute trustees on deeds of trust in the non-judicial states, they substitute uh, trustees for those non-existent remit trusts whose securities were sold as an IPO, but the money never, the proceeds never made it into the remit trust. A lot of judges gave them the benefit of the doubt and awarded these strangers to the transaction with a foreclosure that effectively completed the theft of money and securities from investors and the collateral damage to borrowers who, as it turned out, applied for a loan but got involved in a transaction in which the loan was kind of an afterthought. But the fourth DCA in the Septimus case explicitly restated the obvious fact that for a plaintiff to be substituted, the new plaintiff must still show the standing of the original plaintiff. So they don't get rid of that problem. And it seems that the only way the new plaintiff could be substituted is if it acquired the position of the first plaintiff. But that would require amendment to their pleading stating that a transaction occurred in which this new plaintiff was stated to have acquired the position of the previous plaintiff. But that's not something they do. What they do is they just substitute the plaintiff cross their fingers and hope for the best, and frankly, the judges have granted their wish in many cases. They know that there was, <clears throat> they know there was no transaction, and their lawyers are getting skittish now about saying there was a transaction. They use the substitution of a new plaintiff in place of an assignment as though somehow the issue of ownership, assignment, and endorsement of the note before the commencement of the action, as if they were those factors were irrelevant now that we have a fresh new face on the foreclosure. The banks don't like the Septimus decision because that upsets the whole apple cart, where the original plaintiff could not prove standing. The whole reason they paper over their prior bogus documents is to present a new plaintiff with supposedly apl- applicable legal presumptions of authenticity. They paper it over with some new documents, leaving the whole issue of ownership of the debt, ownership of the note, and ownership of the mortgage in limbo. And they're leaving judges still terribly confused by this crazy scheme of the banks. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call us at our main number, 202-838-6345, which is our main Uh, our new main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if the blog has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Stephen Wright, who has been on before, and I find him to be uh, amazingly articulate about a number of the issues that are 
that I deemed to be important. He went to Trumbull High School, Florida State University, Western New England College of Law, graduated in 1980. So we're not talking about a newcomer in the practice of law. We are talking about a litigator with experience. On the other hand, um, I graduated three years before him, which makes me older, but not necessarily wiser. He is a lecturer in the Commercial Law League of America, a former faculty member of the College of the State Bar in Texas, and a current member of the Connecticut Bar, and of course a previous member of the Texas Bar. He has lectured and written on workouts, collection of judgments, debtor-creditor relations, the UCC, and bankruptcy. Stephen, welcome back, friend. Oh, Neil, it's great to be back. And... um <clears throat> The homeowners in um, Florida are starting to get a good shake. I mean, um, June 22nd, your uh, 4th uh, District Court of Appeals came, 4th District Court of Appeals came out with the Robert Frost case. It's almost like a, uh, almost like a joke. But anyhow, Christina Trust took another dunking on that one. Uh, and that for the very reasons that you stated, it's not a trust. It's, uh, it's, uh, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's the only one I've ever seen with series 2013-18. I mean, I, I, we're not even in 18, so we've got the trust. But anyhow, they, they get, they get, they're getting scolded, and, um, they're, your, uh, second, uh, district court of appeals in the, um, uh, what was that case? The um, Deutsche Bank versus um, Robert O'Brien, yeah. Again, found that uh, that uh, the standing issue was not established simply by doing that. And now even Connecticut has an opinion out, and Connecticut's... Um, rather uh, is not as enlightened as I would say as your Court of Appeals are both. But Connecticut has come out with opinion in kind of a, a different context, and um, it's Deutsche Bank versus Thompson at 163 Con App 827. And it stands for the proposition that the plaintiff mortgagee cannot conclusively establish that it's the holder of the note at the outset by the use of just the default. Uh, which procedurally would preclude the defendant from contesting liability and the facts they're under, and the use of uh, request for admissions would be the same thing. So you, you can't you can't use a default to establish subject matter jurisdiction, um, which is the uh, the issue in that case. Now, I think that's really important. Also, that is important. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 means you can challenge the jurisdiction even you know up to the judgment and even after the judgment. Well, um, su- uh, subject matter jurisdiction uh, is not something that can be waived, and there's plenty of case law across the country that basically says it can be raised at any time, including during appeal. Sure. Um, uh, because the, the court is only too happy to get rid of another case off, off of its docket. I was in a, uh, an appeal unrelated to foreclosures where they remanded the case for a subject matter jurisdiction issue um, 
at the Court of Appeals here in Connecticut for that uh, just on that very issue. They they um, saw that there might be a an issue with standing on the plaintiff's part and then sent them back. It was unrelated to foreclosures, but that's um, that's pretty good stuff. Now you know you also got to watch, and in Connecticut we we have a lot of them. Uh, the credit card collection cases, which is, is uh, kind of like the a mirror image of this. Uh, mortgage foreclosure stuff with the sale of the uh, debt and so forth. But in Midland Funding versus Mitchell James, uh, the Connecticut Court of Appeals uh, found that the affidavit uh, was not admissible for a uh, judgment, uh, affidavit of debt in connection with a judgment, um, because the, um, the affidavit didn't uh, testify that the computer system kept records was reliable to the affiant's knowledge. Now, um, if that if that sticks and there hasn't been no no cert has been sent up to the uh, Supreme Court, so that that's that's the Court of Appeals law. That would make the affidavit of the servicer, uh, the present servicer, in, in a foreclosure case very difficult because you would have to. You know, make a statement regarding the computer records of all of the past holders of the note or all of the past servicers, which would make the affiant uh, nothing more than a bold-faced liar, because nobody could know that. And uh, most of these people signed these affidavits were what about 16, Neil, when we, when loans were made, 17, right? Ten, exactly. Like ten, 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 10 or 15 years ago. So. Um, they're getting, well, I think they're getting there. You know, I, 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 I got a little hope, and I think your court of appeals now. I'm citing it every chance I get, and it's much more difficult just to dismiss the Florida court of appeals than it is to dismiss the Florida's trial court judges. It's much, you know, it's a little weightier. So I think you're going to get. So I think it's going to be good stuff, and and. Uh, People who are defending homeowners should read the Frost case. They should read uh, the case yeah, that Neil was talking about, and they should also read the uh, J A L L A L I versus Christiana Trust. Uh, the Florida Court of Appeals scolded Christiana Trust again for for its record keeping and and you know basically its phony baloney holder status of the note. Well, it's interesting that they're doing that because uh, in individual cases, we're seeing more and more ones that I'm reviewing that other lawyers did as well as uh, cases that I handled uh, with Patrick Junta. Uh, We uh, asked very simple questions like on the uh, uh, notice of default and the right to reinstate they gave a number that couldn't be reconciled with the monthly payments. And the witness no, was completely right. unable to you're where right. those they numbers... Hockman was fined seriously for not uh, you know, validating the debts after they, they took over the servicing. And they the truth they... is, they're not doing a review as required by the 50-state settlement, and they're just steamrolling through because judges are still of a mindset, and this leads to my next question, 
their mindset is that these defenses of the borrower are somehow hairline uh, defenses where the borrower is attempting to take advantage of some minor technicality in order to escape liability on a bona fide loan. And every part of that assumption is wrong, starting yeah, with the bona fide. Yep. And, you know, we've seen, you know, which, especially where Chase was involved and Washington Mutual and so forth, you see Chase uh, substituting SPS or some other uh, servicer because they can't produce a witness who would be required to know the details, like was done in, in that Connecticut case, of what happened with this account. And an example in one of the cases was they showed money in the escrow account, then they showed a withdrawal, then it came back, and they were crediting monthly payments. So this is in a case where the uh, the homeowner had made all their payments but got foreclosed anyway. They were crediting the payments to uh, a suspense fund, anything to get them into foreclosure. Well, we were able to show that the payments were made, and they were unable to show that the payments weren't made because they were made. And the uh, the other interesting thing that happened in that case, I never saw anything like that before or since, is that the judge asked the witness, what is the default date? Now, you would think that would be a relatively easy question to answer. But, in fact, at, at one point, the judge said, I'd just like to put on the record that we're sitting here for 13 minutes while the witness pours through his documents and attempts to answer when the default occurred. And during that period of time, the witness actually said something like, I might be getting it slightly wrong, it was June. No, it was August. No, it was September. Maybe it was October or November. That was the witness's answer. <laughs> and the the lesson, I think, here for the trial lawyers out there who are defending homeowners is that the devil is in the details, and if you get into the details, the devil will be revealed. But on a more fundamental basis, Stephen, um, how do you... I'm sure you run into the same thing that I just said about the judge's attitude. Um, how do you get through to a judge who is, after all, a lawyer, uh, in most cases, uh, and who thinks that he knows the law, and he thinks he knows what's really going on before he even walks in the courtroom, or she? How do you get through to that judge? I, I, you gotta, I, probably you don't. You probably got to let them uh, hear it from the Court of Appeals. So, you know, 
And you do run into that mindset, but um, I think the judges are getting upset with this. You know, I, um, you and I discussed this before. I mean, nobody imagined that it was going to last this long. But then nobody imagined the shenanigans that were going to take place. But then when you think about it, you know, when we got here with bad behavior and there were no consequences, so people don't change behaviors when there's no consequences. So that's why we're still seeing the shenanigans. And um, the judges are starting to move away from that. Uh, you borrowed the money, you got to owe somebody or anybody. And they're um, starting to take a harder look at all this. And uh, the standing issue is becoming a, a, a big issue. And it's a big issue because... For instance, um, if you win the standing issue in some of these cases, they're not going to know who to bring in, what plaintiff to bring in, or who the plaintiff is. And yes, um, it, it'll be the end of it. You know, it's you know, when you win a case on standing and the dismissal doesn't stop the, the proper party from bringing the action, but the the problem they have in this one is they brought the action in the name of the wrong plaintiff because they don't know the right one. Exactly, exactly. And, um, and the reason they don't know the right one uh, is, we, as as I've done in my analysis on the blog, is that the scheme of securitization, not, nothing wrong with it in, intrinsically as a concept, but it wasn't followed. So the money that was raised for one trust didn't go to that trust it was put into a commingled pool with hundreds of other trusts. And so at, at any one time, these sales of so-called securities, mortgage bonds and so forth, uh, were being made, and the money was not going to the trust. Now, did anyone care that the money wasn't going to the trust? Well, nobody from the investment banker's point of view because they got the money. And the trust was, in essence, just an extension of the investment banker. So the the trustee of that trust was merely window dressing for a fee to make it look like a trust and make it look like it was active and make it look like it had a bank account and could purchase loans. But none of them did purchase loans, and that's why, and the corroboration for what I'm saying is right in the litigation across the country in, in millions of foreclosures. They don't allege that they are holders in due course, which would be the obvious thing for them to do. If you're talking about a remote trust in New York, you can't say that they bought the loans in bad faith and with knowledge of the borrower's defenses. They clearly didn't know anything about that. So the only thing left uh, uh, of the elements of a holder in due course is whether or not a purchase of the loan occurred, which is what's required by the UCC under Article 9, but also under Article 3, if they want to be a holder in due course of the note, they have to have purchased it. Well, nobody ever alleges that, which underscores and corroborates what I've been saying, which is that's because the originator of the loan, whether they were a big-time bank or some fly-by-night uh, uh, Joe's Lending um, never made the loan. What they did, what what happened is that they originated the loan. They sold the loan, 
and the money for that loan was taken from this dark pool where all the investors' money was commingled, and they made loans to cover their tracks on what essentially was the, the most epic theft in human history. And they're still getting away with it because nobody has sought to claw back that money that was stolen. And the investors don't know how to make a claim against the borrowers because they don't know any more than anyone else how to trace their money to specific borrowers. If the money had gone into the trust, then that would be relatively easy. You'd have a, a static set of investors and a static set of loans that were purchased. You'd be able to show proof of purchase and, and proof of payment. And you'd be able to take a position in which the, uh, uh, the, the so-called borrower, who I call a mock borrower now, um, uh, owed the trust money and where the trust would have the right on its own or through an agent to foreclose. But none of that ever happened. And that's why the documents were destroyed. That's why we've had robo-signing and fabrication and forgery. That's why all this craziness occurred. Back in the day, Stephen, when you know we started practice, a person went into a bank. They got personally interviewed. The loan was either approved or it wasn't. The bank that they went into made the loan to them, and the paper was good. The way they ran the securitization, the application process was just window dressing. They needed to move some money that way, and they didn't care whether the loan was successful or not. In fact, it was better if it was a bad loan because then they could bet against it. and Which they did. So what we, what, we're, what we end up with is this issue of standing because there is no known lender, and that's not the fault of the borrower. That's right. I, I, you know, you, you bring a lawsuit, you got to show that you were damaged. I mean, that's 101. And that's where it starts, not you borrowed money and you got to pay. That's a, that's a different analysis. But, you know, I, I think the, the level of um, skullduggery, for lack of a better word, that's going on with this whole process um, is beyond the belief of uh, most, uh, most people and judges included. And nobody in, wants in to the believe. day when we started, right? I mean, the the banks were held in high esteem by the courts. You know, if they said you owed X amount of dollars, you owed it. You know, and now that now it's um, they don't warehouse anything; they sell everything off. And um, they, and they sell it in pieces, so you know, no, no one knows what, what's who's got what. So. I think the also you know it's had a ha you you you've made some wonderful commentary about what it's done to the harm that it's caused and um, 
you know, I, I read the other day because of my um, involvement with um, the Board of Edu- State Board of Education, uh, there are uh, 1.6 more homeless children between the ages of uh, 13 and 18, beginning with the mortgage crisis, than, than there ever was. And, and the and the typical profile is a, a middle class family where the uh, they overextended themselves on the loan because there was no 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 financial um, literacy going on either on the bank's part or the borrower's part and um, they just broke apart and now we have homeless homeless kids running around uh, as a direct result of this this scheme so I mean it's really it's it's it's, it's horrible. Yeah, and that's I've the seen kind of case- stuff is that that might get the, that might get that judge who comes in um, and wants to familiarize himself with the facts sometime after he makes a decision listening to you or or or, or perk, perking up a little bit because that that's real harm and it's just not a bunch of um, you know uh, and, and taking people's homes that's real harm that's really uh, bad stuff and. Um, they haven't paid the price yet, but I think that the, the courts, at least my feeling with the courts, is they're getting kind of sick of it, and they're um, starting to um, look at the people who, uh, you know, the person who controls the event is the one that you got to tell to stop it. Right. And so they're, exactly. They're, Florida has has made it loud and clear to stop it, um, and I think more. Courts will have to take a look at what the court of appeals is, is doing in Florida, um, because it is on a, a, a higher level than the trial court decision, which you can easily brush off as being a something you know trial court. And um, you're going to have to read that case, and, and they're going to have to uh, they're going to have to read them everywhere. And um, they're the right cases, and they they're they're they're. They're starting to get towards the area where they're not going to buy this presumption stuff anymore about the validity of these assignments, too. That uh, That's another hoax that the banks have managed to pull off. And and you know what? The, the, the thing that bothers me, Neil, is we'll probably, you and I will probably never be around to see it, but this is going to bite somebody in the bottom someday because someday somebody's going to use this twisted version of the law Right. That, <clears throat> that they're torturing right now in order to support the bank's foreclosure actions, they're going to use it in a way that they don't want it to be used, which is always what happens, and the unintended consequences are going to be dramatic. You and I won't have to worry about it, but that's what happens. Well, we've already that. seen some of that in California, and I've yeah. heard reports uh, uh, from other states as well where there's a new business of finding out who people owe and then posing as a servicer or agent of that entity and suing them and collecting money. And the the initial reaction from the courts was to allow them to do it. And now there's, there's some, you know, pushback on that and, and you know, uh, uh, judges as a whole are not stupid. They get the fact that you know, if that's wrong, then it must also be wrong in mortgage foreclosures. And uh, I, I'm looking 
for the time, if it ever occurs, that uh, uh, like that moment in Jessenowski where the uh, unanimous Supreme Court said, yeah, this statute means what it says. It's We're going to have another moment like that where the U.S. Supreme Court says, you can't do this anymore. You've got to have real facts that are pled, and you've got to prove them. And this attitude of once you get past a motion to dismiss or whatever, that you've got uh, a valid claim and the judge rules on discovery as though these matters were already decided, that this is wrong. And you're right. In the future, on something that has nothing to do with loans, Somebody's going to bring up these decisions, which include sometimes state supreme courts, mm-hmm. and say, it's right here, Judge. It may not look right, but that's the law. And oh, at that yeah. point, and I, I think that's what you're talking about, that at that that's point. The, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to come back and bite them in the ass. You use the word bottom, but. I'm less polite. But no, but that's that. what that's what happens, and it's happened before, and um, and I think they're start. I think, um, well, I, look, the Florida Court of Appeals has, has has finally got it. They're not they're not putting up with these assignments that show up um, out of nowhere, and 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 the kind of stuff that you see going on. But um, <clears throat> I. I well, uh, I think the judges are getting. I think the judges are getting mad, and I don't know. They they were already mad at the borrowers, and it didn't work, and and the thing dragged on. Now now I think the the focus is 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 changing. I, I agree with you. I think it is changing, but it's not changing fast enough. But then again, no. I'm impatient. Well, you're, well, you should. And this people are losing homes. I mean, that's it's it's not you know it's not. Um, it's and and, and it's, it's equivalent. I always say that it's the equivalent of capital punishment in, in civil court. There, there can be no worse loss for a person than yeah, you're burying the American dream. You really are. That that's what you're doing. So and, uh, um, this whole scheme was wrapped around the American dream, and um, right. The people who bet against these securitizations were almost laughed out of Wall Street when they showed up wanting to buy a product that that just bet on this failing because the American dream was the American dream, and um, it's being buried right now, and it's kind of sad. It It is sad, and it's tragic uh, for uh, millions of families who have ended up you know, moving in with relatives or worse, living on the streets, um, all because they were sold on a loan product that they couldn't possibly understand. And it turns out that the so-called loan product was not primarily a loan. It was primarily a ticket to steal from the investors. And with full knowledge that the borrowers were going to be collateral damage, and the uh, uh, people sometimes ask me to explain why uh, uh, they made these toxic loans, 
and my answer is that the more toxic the loan, the more money the mega banks did as as underwriting banks for the sale of the uh, uh, mortgage bonds. The, the the more toxic the loan, the more money they made, and here's why. If you get a pension fund that is expecting a return of 5%, and that's higher than whatever is available to them as a stable managed fund, they have to invest only in AAA securities, so a quarter of a point makes a big difference, and if they're getting 4%, uh, somewhere and now they can get five. They're now pretty good candidates to purchase these these mortgage-backed securities. So they give somebody like Wells Fargo or Bank of America or Merrill Lynch, Bear Stearns, or whoever you want to mention. They give them a hundred million dollars and they're expecting five million a year in interest income. And that's exactly the contract they get from the trust. Of course, the trust never gets the loans, but that's not the point here. Um, they're expecting that the, the pension fund manager is expecting that the loans will all be AAA loans. But what really happens is that they're told that the loans are AAA and what really happens is that as much money as the investment bank thinks it can get away with, it loans out to very uh, poorly resourced borrowers, if you want to call them that. I think they're not really borrowers because there's no real valid loan contract, so how can you have a borrower? But if they loan the $100 million, just by way of example, to borrowers at 10%, well, the pension fund is only expecting 5%. So now they only have to lend out $50 million instead of $100 million in order to get the $5 million that the pension fund was expecting. That leaves $50 million, half of what the investor gave the underwriter, in the pocket of the underwriter with no knowledge on the part of the investors. Now, there were some hedge funds that looked at, at this when, when this securitization thing began and said they wouldn't touch it. And they, the reason is that they peeked under the hood and they saw what the scheme was. So... The reason why these toxic so-called loans were made was because the bank was, was making as much money in profit, trading profit, they called it, as the loan itself, knowing full well that what they had done was just cheated the investors out of the investment that they thought they were getting. So what we have here is the borrower is a pawn in a grand scheme of theft from the investors. 
Without the borrower's signature, it doesn't work. Without the money from the investors, it doesn't work. But once you get that signature from the borrower, then that borrower's financial identification can be used to sell the loan multiple times and uh, frequently uh, at a premium. And it resulted in many cases in the same loan being sold as part of a so-called pool of loans multiple times to, on paper, multiple trusts who, in fact, were not actually buying them and weren't getting them. So that's part of the reason why I'm starting to refer to the borrowers as mock borrowers, because they are, in fact, uh, uh, the victims of financial trickery. So, uh, oh, for those of you who want to get in touch with uh, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, the phone number for him is 203-261-3050. And... Um, I think uh, Stephen would be a good person to call whether you're in Connecticut or not uh, because he can provide uh, various elements of litigation support either by uh, consulting or by uh, uh, doing a review and recommendations and uh, uh, doing uh, 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 consulting conferences. Uh, much as I do, I would trust him uh, with that information and with that uh, strategy uh, uh, under all circumstances. So, uh, very quickly, in a minute or less, Stephen, how do you think the future is going to go in foreclosure defense? Well, I think it's going to depend on um, who uh, is doing the foreclosing because um, there are certain um, so-called holders of these notes, trusts, and so forth, that are now starting to get put to their proof on whether or not they actually own them. So that's that's good stuff. Um, I would like to think that it would be sometime come to an end or that they would just kind of what you have described in the past in our conversations is hit the reset button and kind of work this thing out so that, People don't have to lose their homes, um, and um, I don't really see the the harm that that would cause the lender. I don't. I don't I, they did this simply because there was no risk in this this scheme that was created. So I don't see how they're going to be harmed by it. So right. I'd like to see that happen, um, and then <clears throat> it would do it would do wonders for our economy to get the housing market back into shape. Yeah, I mean, if, if we could return some kind of household wealth to oh, yeah. where it belongs and where That's it was right. stolen from, that would be the biggest stimulus the economy could have. Absolutely. Stephen Wright, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, I look forward to having you rejoin us to talk about further developments in the appellate courts in Connecticut and the Northeast and across the land. As always, it's been a pleasure to have you. 
Well, as always, it's always been a pleasure to join you, and um, thank you for what you do. And uh, you are a shaft of light, Neil, for a lot of folks, so um, keep it up. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Yep, take care. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.